0: you are listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a bi-monthly podcast that explores stories inspired by the collections of the Lloyd Library and Museum, located in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. The Lloyd Library has over 150,000 volumes of books and periodicals and nearly 3,000 linear feet of archival materials in its collections, with works published from 1493 to the present. In addition to rare floras and a wealth of other resources about plants, the collections shed light on the history of medicine. I'm Meg Hanrahan, your host. It didn't surprise me to learn that the materials at the Lloyd had attracted the attention of historian Kevin Grace. Kevin has written more than a dozen books on the history of Cincinnati, and has delved deeply into the history of medicine and medical education in the region. His work as head of the Archives and Rare Books Library at the University of Cincinnati, where he worked for 42 years, helped to motivate his interest in these topics. As he explained when I asked how he'd gotten started on this area of
1: research. When I first started at uh, UC, at the University of Cincinnati, in 1979, uh, the archives held a lot of the local uh, hospital records, Jewish hospital records, Dunham Hospital, of course, uh, General Hospital. And so we were often called upon to do reference work in, in those records. And that's really how it started, because UC has always been so connected to the city of Cincinnati and its heritage, and even... You know, with medicine, Uh, there were nearly 20 hospitals or medical schools in Cincinnati in the 19th century. So there was a whole lot of material.
0: There was one rather gruesome aspect of the history that especially captured Kevin's attention.
1: What really got me was the history of body snatching in Cincinnati. In, in terms of grave robbing and providing bodies for uh, anatomy studies in, in the various medical schools in Cincinnati. So a lot of this has all come together and uh, has stayed with me after all these years.
0: No doubt body snatching is a perfect topic for an October podcast, but I also wanted to learn more about the general history of healthcare here and how the history of eclectic and botanic medicine fit in. So we agreed to start at the beginning. Kevin, what was health care like for people in Cincinnati during its early history?
1: Well, if we go back to when Cincinnati was founded, we're essentially dealing with health care being something done in the home or in the barracks of Fort Washington. Uh, There was very little of it, and there were illnesses to take care of, but most of them were done by traditional late 18th century, early 19th century um, herbal medicines, uh, various uh, cures like bloodletting, of of course, was a known um, medical technique. And so there really was no organized health care. That wouldn't come about until probably around 1815 when the first hospital was founded in Cincinnati, and that went away fairly quickly. So when people had an illness, and there were illnesses, there was a smallpox epidemic that broke out. We had a number of cholera epidemics in the 19th century. There wasn't a whole lot of organized care. Uh, It was a lot of herbal remedies concocted in the home and just common sense treatment of ailments, and that was about the extent of it. It really wouldn't be until probably 1819, 1820, that the city formally moved on providing medical education in a hospital. And you have to consider, too, that Cincinnati was a frontier settlement. Uh, there wasn't a lot of sanitation, if any. Uh, there was um, a river flowing by that often flooded and, and caused distress in one way or another. So people were forced to to get better on their own if they... If they did get better, Uh, a lot of times they didn't.
0: When we get sick nowadays, most of us go to the doctor. But it sounds like there weren't many doctors here in the early 19th century. When did doctors come onto the scene, and what was their level
1: of training? There were very, very few doctors, and the level of education was such that uh, it was on-the-job training, For a lot. The first really medical doctor we we have serious consideration for is Daniel Drake.
0: Though the name Daniel Drake is often heard in connection with Cincinnati history, I didn't know much about him. I learned that Drake was born in New Jersey in 1785. He moved with his family to the Kentucky frontier a few years later, and at just 13 years of age, became a student of Dr. William Goforth, one of Cincinnati's first doctors. Goforth awarded Drake a diploma to practice medicine in 1805. Then Drake went to Philadelphia, where he received formal medical training for two years, before returning to the Ohio River Valley, where he made his mark.
1: He came back to Cincinnati, took over what had been Goforth's practice, and uh, turned it into a, a formal medical situation here in Cincinnati, and started training doctors himself. A lot of the people who became doctors, a lot of the young men, did not have any real formal training in a medical school. They had preceptors or sponsors who would uh, vouch for them to attend medical education in Cincinnati. And the way it worked, there were various practices, and you bought lecture tickets for each academic term and presented them at the door when you went in to hear the lecture. And by that means you uh, learned your your art and your craft of medicine. It was Drake who really started things like teaching hospitals or, or clinical hospitals Daniel Drake um, was a brilliant man. You know, we'll say that at the outset. He he was sort of Cincinnati's Thomas Jefferson. But the brilliant thing about um, Daniel Drake is that medicine wasn't his only interest. He was interested in geography. Uh, He was interested in history. He was interested in literature. Uh, He was responsible for uh, helping to form what is now the uh, Cincinnati Museum Center, the, formerly the Cincinnati Historical Society, uh, he was instrumental in that. He, he wrote journals. He did try and get Cincinnatians to pay more attention to the causes of diseases like cholera and to take measures for that. So in a way, Daniel Drake was all over the place, contributing virtually everything we knew about the Ohio Valley at that time.
0: Let's talk more about the epidemics, since that's a topic on our minds a lot these days in the age of COVID. What type of epidemics were there, and how did the city respond to them?
1: We had a smallpox epidemic in 1792. The treatment for that um, was camphorated water, uh, bloodletting, but there were inoculations by that time. I don't know if people were being inoculated in in Cincinnati, but there certainly was a smallpox vaccine at that time. George Washington used it for his troops, for instance. Then we had a series of cholera epidemics throughout the 19th century. And, you know, cholera came about because of unsanitary conditions. And the Cincinnati Water Works um, was really a pioneer in this country in the treatment of water. But you also have to consider that Cincinnati was still a a very transient community, people coming down the river all the time. If you have a lot of people coming in into your area, there's gonna be the chance of uh, transmission of diseases like cholera or typhoid or dysentery. The interesting thing is in the 1849 cholera epidemic, 8,000 people died in Cincinnati, which was quite a number of people for, for the city at that time. In 1866, um, just 17 years later, only 1,400 people died. And in 1873, a few years after that, only 200 people died. And what that shows is that Cincinnatians were developing sanitation. And then, of course, we had, if we take it up to the 20th century, we had the Spanish flu epidemic in Cincinnati. And in that... 100,000 people in Cincinnati were infected. Out of that number, 1,700 died. So we actually had, if you look at the percentage, we had uh, 450 people die per 100,000 in in the population. So isolation was one of the treatments for this. So we weathered those um, epidemics, but it took a while. It it was a gradual... um, Gradual knowledge of what it was required to to maintain public health.
0: Getting on then to the middle of the 19th century, we had the Civil War. That must have created an enormous need for medical practitioners of all kinds. What role did women and nurses play?
1: Well, during the Civil War, Cincinnati, of course, was a border city. So uh, we raised troops here, sent them out to battle, Uh, We also established uh, hospital boats on the river and hospitals here. And it was mainly the uh, various orders of nuns who attended to the the wounded sick soldiers who, who were brought to Cincinnati. One of the things that was done, the U.S. Sanitary Commission established what they called sanitary fairs. And there was a great one in Cincinnati from December of 1863 through April of 1864. And the intent of these uh, sanitary fairs were to raise funds to treat wounded soldiers uh, and to provide medical supplies for them. Women were, were mainly nurses during then, but they took, they took the responsibility, the major responsibility for tending to the wounded. And of course, uh, you, you look at a hospital like Good Samaritan Hospital, that grew directly out of the uh, sisters who were tending to the wounded during the Civil War. So Cincinnati, because we had a lot of medical training here that was going on, uh, Cincinnati became an important place to treat soldiers uh, during the war.
0: And were midwives still common at that time?
1: You find that most births were attended by midwives uh, especially when you look at socioeconomic differences so midwives were an extremely important part of the community and they were a trusted part of the community because quite often they were your neighbors if you were a woman giving birth chances are you knew the midwife she was someone who lived in your neighborhood and so their role was extremely important in providing for the health care of our immigrant populations in Cincinnati.
0: So midwives generally received their training from other midwives. When did formal medical training for nurses and other women in the medical professions begin here?
1: In terms of formal training of nurses, that didn't come about until the 1880s when the Cincinnati Training School for Nurses was founded. A woman by the name of Annie Laws was instrumental in that. And later on, Annie Laws would be a a founder of the Cincinnati Kindergarten School. She would be a prominent member of the Cincinnati Women's Club. So in her forming of the Cincinnati Training School for Nurses, she realized the important role that nursing had in medical care in Cincinnati in the hospitals uh, particularly, but also that this was a role Um, that women were not necessarily excluded from. So that training school eventually became what is now the UC College of Nursing. And, of course, the UC College of Nursing was one of the first to award a baccalaureate in nursing. But the other side of that is that women were also included in uh, medical schools, in um, the Eclectic Medical Institute, well, women were were brought in a, as early as the 1870s and 80s. There was also a Laura Memorial Medical Women's Medical College that was an affiliation of previous schools of medicine for women. And so they created female doctors as well. So it was a necessity that if you're going to have Adequate medical care, sufficient medical care, enough medical care in Cincinnati, you could not ignore this portion of the population that was willing to be trained in that. In addition to that, we had the Cincinnati College of Pharmacy that was founded in 1850. We also had a college of dentistry that was founded here, and it graduated the first woman dentist in the country, Lucy Hobbs, who came all the way from Iowa to... uh, she educated in the Cincinnati um, Dental College and at graduation, just like all the others, she was given a diploma and a Bible. So she was out to fill real tooth cavities as well as any moral cavities she could find. Now, you have to realize, too, that of all these medical schools in Cincinnati in the 19th century, several of them went in and out of business pretty quickly. Others. Merged or affiliated with each other, and still others uh, eventually became part of what is now the UC College of Medicine, like Ohio Medical College and and Miami Medical College are now what's part of uh, UC. The same was for the Cincinnati College of Medicine and Surgery. So anything you could think of in the 19th century in Cincinnati in terms of medical care found its expression in either a private hospital or in a um, medical school however short-lived it might have been. So
0: these medical schools had some unique needs that brought out entrepreneurs who weren't afraid to get their hands dirty. Tell us about that.
1: Well, let's step back. Let's go back to to Europe for a little bit and to Scotland and specifically to Edinburgh. University of Edinburgh had one of the greatest medical schools in the world. Still does. But um, the physicians there who were teaching anatomy late 1700s, early 1800s, up to about uh, mid-19th century, um, needed bodies. There was no way to get bodies unless you had an executed criminal or something like that. And then there were public dissections and things like that. Well, in order to get bodies for their anatomy classes and demonstrations, they were willing to pay for fresh dead bodies. Now, if you're a person who needs to make a little money, you see this need, and uh, you find a way to answer that need. So you developed a, um, I don't know, a little industry of body snatching, or as we called them, besides body snatchers, sack-em-up men or resurrection men, who would go into a graveyard at night, uh, haul out a body from the grave, and sell it to the anatomists at the medical schools. Now we come to this country, and these kinds of things are going on uh, in various cities, Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, where there are medical schools and bodies are needed. And at that time, there was no law that provided for the donation of a body. It had to be an executed criminal or somebody like that. Cincinnati, with all its medical schools, with all its needs, was a perfect place for this as well, because we were a river town with a lot of transients coming in, a lot of death and disease, so people were being buried. And so it became sort of a cottage industry here, uh, to the point where bodies resurrected here could occasionally be even crated up and sent to medical schools in other cities. The key was to do it while it was fresh. Now, when we talk about body snatching, these body snatchers are not digging up graves, getting the coffin out, taking the body and putting everything back. They dig down at the head of the grave, they break through the casket, and they loop a rope around the head and shoulders, and they yank them up. And then they sell them to the various medical schools in Cincinnati for about 30 bucks a body. Pretty good income. And, of course, that has progressed over the years to where we can now donate our bodies. For the purpose of, of medical education.
0: Well, we're fortunate to have progressed in that regard. Now, getting back to an earlier discussion, some of the schools of thought in healthcare that you've mentioned would be considered alternative therapies today, but a lot of people have never heard of Thomsonian or eclectic medicine. Tell us a little bit about them.
1: The Thomsonian medical practices uh, were... Homeopathic in a way, but they emphasize steam cures or water cures, uh, but also herbal medicine. Uh, That was an issue that the Eclectic Medical Institute uh, really assumed importance in. The eclectic um, medicine uh, movement um, really came about in the early 1800s. Uh, By 1830, there was an Eclectic Medical Institute in, um, in Ohio, in Worthington and it moved down to Cincinnati. And what it basically meant is that um, it was a term that referred to uh, botanical remedies as well as physical therapy. So as opposed to conventional medicine or allopathic medicine that relies on surgery and on drugs and, and later on things like radiation treatment. So Early on, eclectic medicine was looking at, let's say, non-invasive ways to treat people and uh, had a great deal of success with it. And, and I think in many ways is is very relevant today. Uh, we tend to, to look at medicine today as something that should encompass every possible treatment that will satisfy the patient. And it can be everything from... Asian traditional medicine to herbal medicine in the United States, uh, eclectic medicine here tended first to look at things like uh, Native American um, botanical treatments. You know, there, there was evidence to support the validity of all that. And so why not apply that if you can without invasive treatments? And so that could include Holistic medicine, uh, which which was a benefit. And the Eclectic Medical Institute lasted until 1939. Uh, It was the Flexner Report of 1910 from the American Medical Association that really spelled a downfall for a lot of eclectic medicine.
0: The Flexner Report written by Abraham Flexner and published by the Carnegie Foundation, reported on medical education in the United States and called for higher admission and graduation standards for medical students, as well as stricter science-based protocols for teaching and research. Many medical schools fell short of the standards called for, and more than half of all American medical schools merged or closed as a result. Homeopathic, eclectic, and osteopathic schools were especially hard hit, and alternatives to allopathic medicine like these were criticized and scorned. I asked Kevin about the motivations behind the Flexner Report.
1: Well, now you're you're looking at a personal opinion here, but I I think it came down to power and money. The American Medical Association wanted complete power over medical treatment in the United States, and they wanted to quash whatever was reactive to that. Uh, It was also an economic thing. They wanted to make money. Hospitals wanted to make money. You make money, how? How? by performing surgeries, by prescribing drugs, uh, and things of that sort. So I I think it was um, an economic and authoritarian movement that was strong enough to uh, put the kibosh to eclectic medicine. Um, Today, I think we see a reaction against that. Uh, I think we see people more involved with uh, their medical treatments, um, willing to explore different treatments even if they're not cost-effective for a hospital.
0: So how do you see eclectic medicine fitting in with alternative medical therapies today, things like integrative medicine, which it seems would be similar in some ways?
1: It it is, and I I think a perfect term is integrative medicine, that you look at different possibilities. You look at the patient and, and what would be best for him or her, Uh, So if it involves botanical treatment, if it involves physical therapy, it involves um, various herbal remedies, uh, you look at that as well. You don't exclude anything. And I think that's the point with eclectic medicine today and its integration with traditional medicine. You just don't exclude any possibility.
0: As you know, a lot of the collections at The Lloyd Library are related to eclectic medicine. How is the philosophy of eclectic medicine related to the Lloyd brothers who started the library?
1: Well, John Urey Lloyd and his brothers were, of course, pharmacists, but they were always involved in botanical treatments, which makes sense. Uh, So they were big proponents of eclectic medicine. When they established the Lloyd Library, uh, they deposited their research there, their treatments. They gathered it from other eclectic physicians, other pharmacists involved in, in herbal remedies and things of that sort. And the result was is that the Lloyd Library probably, I think arguably, has the world's greatest collection of historical materials on eclectic medicine. And it continues to grow, but it importantly, it continues to be more and more important in, in how we regard medical treatments, uh, how we um, look at how human beings have, have been uh, serviced with, with um, health remedies. And so the Lloyd brothers, uh, and particularly John Urey Lloyd, in funding and founding the Lloyd Library and gathering these materials, uh, what they've done is, is create a possibility of holistic medicine that might be unparalleled when it comes to historical research.
0: So it appears that Cincinnati has a substantial history of many kinds of medical education and healthcare care practices over the last 230 years or so.
1: We have such a rich heritage of uh, medical education here in Cincinnati, and it's rich not only in, in terms of uh, its depth, but also in its breadth as well. Cincinnati was a city that experimented that practice so many different kinds of medicine, that it's important to recognize that, that we really were a center in the United States for um, innovative work in medicine.
0: And I believe you have a short poem to wrap up our talk today.
1: I have a favorite little poem that was written by an Englishman about body snatching, but I've always liked it because it it expresses things so well. Um, By Thomas Hood, he, he says, I thought... The last of all my cares would end with my last minute. But though I went to my long home, I didn't stay long in it. The body snatchers, they have come and made a snatch of me. It's very hard, them kind of men. Won't let a body be.
0: A perfect end to our October podcast. Thank you, Kevin. Our guest today has been historian Kevin Grace. Thanks for listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a bi-monthly podcast of the Lloyd Library and Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. Interview and story by Meg Hanrahan. Audio editing and mixing by David Proust. Want to learn more about the Lloyd and its collections? You can visit online anytime at lloydlibrary.org.